Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I think I have much to tell you about history, about your history. Your father was a visionary. What did he see? That kings have a need of their subjects. A dangerous idea. Rise and rise again until lambs become lions. My father died for this. What does it mean? It means never give up. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Robin Hood is over. Thank God the kids on the ponies are here. The laws of this land enslave people to its king. A king who offers nothing in return. Robin Longstride, also known as Robin of the Hood. For the crimes of incitement to cause unrest, I declare him to be an outlaw! All who shelter him, their lives shall be taken on sight. Nail, please. All right, Andy, we did it. We did it. We made it to Ridley Scott's 2010 Robin Hood. Why again did we do this series? Let's give us a little recap. It's an interesting opportunity to look at how uh, a very common and commonly known story about a kind of a mythical, perhaps based on a real figure, uh, how it gets interpreted and reinterpreted over time. And looking at a variety of Robin Hood stories from 1922 all the way up through 2010, it just it allows us to kind of explore this myth and the mythos and the tropes that go along with it and what are filmmakers doing to change it and is it working? Is it needed? Do people still want to hear Robin Hood stories? Do they still want to hear us talking about Robin Hood? So many things. So I I mean, I think that's why we did it was just to look at something like this character that has a particular idea, Rob from the Rich and still uh to this Rob from <laughs> <laughs> Rob for the witch and give to the poor. They rob from everybody. And uh, that's an idea that potentially has an opportunity to uh, to infuse in, you know, in the time and people's yeah. um, mentalities with the zeitgeist of what's going on in the world. And so um, I know that wasn't like the bulk of our conversations in a lot of these Robin Hood movies, but still, it's interesting to look at what's going on and why are people choosing to interpret the story in different ways and what are they doing to change it? And so I think that's why we largely tackled it. Well, I and and it has been, I, I have to say, it, as, as a participant in the show, it has been fun. And I don't regret, actually, the long series, because I think being able to see the snapshot of, of Robin Hood over such a long period of time has been really rewarding. I do wish that the films in general had been more of a slam dunk, like solid films. I feel like I, I went into this series with higher expectations. Uh, and uh, so that that has disappointed me because and maybe this gets to why these movies keep being made. I still have faith that there's a Robin Hood story out there that hasn't been told yet. That is a slam dunk, solid quality movie. I feel like it exists somewhere and we have not yet yet seen it. So I do think that Ridley Scott got us closer. He kicked the ball down the field in some interesting ways. So I look forward to talking about that tonight. Well, and just to confirm, when you say that, you're you're talking about like, basically, they they play all the Robin Hood tropes, 
They hit it out of the park. It's a five-star movie, and everybody's like, oh, thank God. That's the Robin Hood movie that that filmmakers have been trying to make for 100-plus years, and uh, now we don't need to make it anymore because <laughs> you can just point to that one movie, and that's everything encapsulating it. By God, man, if we get to that point <laughs> where people say, this movie was so good, we're going to stop making Robin Hood movies... <laughs> I yes, that's we've reached Valhalla. <laughs> Bury me in Sherwood, baby. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> we you we wanted to talk about some of the big questions of uh, of the film, some of the big questions of, of how this film addresses them, and the first one that uh, I think is is really pertinent actually uh, hangs a little bit off of a, a big question from last week, talking about what it is that makes Mel Brooks take on, uh, put his stamp on a particular uh, point in history, a particular story. Well, kind of the same thing goes with Ridley Scott. I, I would say, I would ask, what is it that makes Ridley Scott want to tell this story? And why the hell can't he get it right the first time? Yeah, that's, that is the big question that I have with uh, with Ridley Scott these days, is what is it with this man who just keeps releasing these big epic films, but uh, I don't know if he just can't decide on the edit or if the studio is saying, well, it has to be this length. I don't know. I don't know why there is this this problem with Ridley Scott and this need to kind of keep going back and fiddling with stuff. I feel like, I mean, I don't think he ever did that until he went back and kind of started fiddling around with Blade Runner and then Alien, and then after that, you know, the the big story of Kingdom of Heaven, and uh, this, and, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe that's it, but I feel like it's something Alan. that's been a thing for him, where you got to keep, you know, retelling these big epic stories, because for some reason, they won't just let him say, this is the movie, put it out there. I don't understand why that is the case. How how much of it do you think is a little bit conditioned behavior, right? Because when when he hit Blade Runner, uh, that was first early. It was hard to get. Like you could tell there was it was a special thing. Like real cinemaphiles went out and they had the director's cut, and you could see the director's cut. You could see what what the director really intended. And I feel like for me, at least in my circle of of friends and film lovers, that was the first time that a director really put his stamp on. Uh, what he considered to be the shortcomings of the original release. And that changed things for me. And I think it changed things for him in his career, too. It made him capable or able to get uh, to do this again. And I, I wonder if there isn't a little bit marketing message, a little bit perfectionist uh, in in his motivations and the studio's motivations behind letting him do this. Once you do it a few times and you realize there's an opportunity to sell more uh, aftermarket home video, there's an opportunity to clean up some of the things you wanted to do. Eventually, it becomes a little bit of the Ridley Scott addiction. Uh, and uh, it, it's just part of what you get doing a, a, a Scott movie anymore. Yeah, that really does seem to be the case. It's just I I feel like this movie perhaps is the one with 
what seems to be the shortest turnaround from the theatrical release to the extended version that came out. Because I, I think when the disc came out for this, it just had it on there. Kingdom of Heaven was right. one there. It's like, you know, we need to, I, I don't know. I felt like he had to almost convince them, let me release this. It's, this is how I wanted it to be. And well, and I think Kingdom of later. Heaven, there were some really much more extravagant changes that yes. he wanted to make. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And it's only, what, like 15 extra minutes. That wasn't even a huge yeah. change. And so, honestly, and this is the only time I've seen this film and I watched the extended version. So, I don't know what the differences are. Um, I don't know if you do, but it felt like a complete film. And looking at it, I'm like, I'm not sure what he would have cut out of this to, to shorten it and if it was really necessary. Because I feel like if you just released it this way, it probably would have been fine. And I know studios are concerned, well, if we cut this much, then we can play an extra, squeeze an extra showtime in, we make more money, blah, blah, blah. It's always the bottom line. Um, yeah, right. But right, I feel yeah. like, you know, this is Ridley Scott. You know, just roll with it. Maybe it's a budget thing, because I know he went way over budget. And maybe they said, if you're going to go over budget, that's fine. But then you're going to have to deliver the film at this length. I guess I, we got to ask, and this gets us into talking about the movie a little bit more, is is this, was this a necessary film after we've seen all the other films that we've seen, knowing that we're not talking about uh, the film to come after this in the series? Was this one necessary to you? It's a, it's a tricky question to ask about something like this character of Robin Hood, because, I mean, when you look at the Robin Hood, like Wikipedia page, and you just look at how many titles have been made involving Robin Hood. I think you can ask that question about a lot of them because it's like, yeah. you know, I mean, and some of them really are changing it up. Some of them just feel like uh, just another pretty typical Robin Hood story. I don't know if this one needed to be made, but I feel like if Ridley Scott was going to make one, that this is the version that he would do because it took on so much more than just the Robin Hood story. And it really contextualized things for me in a way that I thought was really interesting. And I found myself appreciating that there was stuff that uh, that allowed this story to feel a little more grounded in kind of the historical setting. And it also, weirdly, this is a funny thing that I, I don't think I realized until this film is because so often in the Robin Hood stories, you have the Sheriff of Nottingham and you have uh, Prince John. And mm -hmm. it feels like they're buddy-buddy and they're always hanging out with each other. This is the first one that you realize, you know what? Prince John is probably in London and the Sheriff is of Nottingham, Nottingham. which is not exactly close. So I don't think they're hanging out all that often. It it was like you know there there it's and at it, this point Prince John Prince John is a king. Well, he becomes king in this story, right. just like in earlier ones, because his brother gets killed. His right, brother never right. returns, so that's that's definitely a change. Um, and I I feel like that's an interesting shift in the Robin Hood story where he's not at home while the king is away and he's not like protecting the king's place waiting for the king to come home he is like this this feels like it's taking place really the same period that sean connery's uh, version was when he's mm -hmm. there with the king and maybe this was a historical thing that had happened because it's like the idiot who shoots the king and kills him i'm like oh is that right. something that really happened maybe and i just didn't realize it but that set the entire story in a very different place that none of these other stories have had. 
because they all take place while you're waiting for King Richard to come home. Right, right. And I think that I, I think that works. The historical bit works. I think the challenge that this film has and maybe what has made it much more of a controversial entry is that it uh, it issues some of the fantasy elements that we just sort of take for granted in these other movies and and goes kind of half in on specific uh, historical uh, events. Right. These specific events in history and then ties this fantastical Robin Hood story in and out of it. Uh, it is uh, much more uh, a story about England tearing itself apart and the group of of, you know, saviors that came together to to tie it together again uh, than it is a story of. Robin Hood. He's a an ancillary character in his own movie. And I think that's one of the things that makes this this movie a challenge. It feels so much like Ridley Scott uh, just wasn't done with Kingdom of Heaven, just wanted to or he wanted to make this another story of the same kind of ilk. And it got confused along the way, especially when you look at where the story came from. And you yeah. look at like, I mean, basically, there was a script um, that was written by, or I'm going to forget their names right now, uh, Ethan Rifen and Cyrus Voris, who wrote a spec script called Nottingham, which was described as a Sherlock Holmes in Sherwood or CSI Sherwood Forest, Forest, where the sheriff of Nottingham is much more sympathetic, kind of playing this almost forensic detective type of guy. Robin Hood is more of the villain. And then the three of them have this, or the two of them, end up falling for Marion, and it kind of creates this this love triangle. When you look at that story, and that's what kind of piqued Russell Crowe's interest, that's what uh, brought Ridley Scott on, and then to have him go, I'm not happy with this script, let's change it, and go through years of rewrites to end up with this. I'm like, wow, why did you even bother signing on to that and just not say, let's do this story? Because it's like... It's such a strange line for me, and, and I know this is so typical Hollywood, that when you have a, a script that is one thing, and you say, let's let's make this film, and then, oh, we change this, change this, change this, change this, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden you, you have, you went from A to Z, and that's the film that you end up making. It's like, well, why did you even bother with A? It's, it's so yeah, strange yeah. to me. Yeah, it's funny. I read the initial, that initial, uh, description of the original script that had enticed Russell Crowe. And I thought, you know what? I'm a guy who really liked Brick. And I can kind of imagine uh, a take on like that, that sort of detective story in Sherwood Forest. I can get behind that. That's a movie I'd like to see. And I was immediately disappointed. (laughs) This was the movie we got, even though I actually I I had a a good time with this movie. And I I just feel like the controversy of getting it made and so many of the egos have just sort of muddied it. Well, it certainly was an interesting way to spin it. And to that end, I definitely appreciated what Ridley Scott yes. did, even if he did completely alter the original uh, intent of the story that was being told. Um, you know, it's it's just one of those things. It's it's you know big egos and big uh, personalities who take on these projects and kind of force this manipulation to end up with something. 
Um, yeah, I I think it's pretty interesting. But yeah, it, it does make you wonder, did did we need this version? I mean, you look at what somebody like um, uh, Roger Ebert, he said, little by little, title by title, innocence and joy is being drained out of the movies, uh, specifically referring to kind of these Robin Hood stories. And then, you know, another uh, David Rourke of um, Relevant Magazine said, Scott is replacing depth with detail and manipulative themes like vengeance and unjust war. And he said that Scott sucked the life out of, a, out of a cherished fable. He turned a myth, a concept essentially, into a history, which emerges as dry, insensible clutter. I think that all of that is a little harsh, but it does, you know, it does beg the question, you know, would this have been better if they were prancing around in tights? And it felt a little more fanciful and light. And I think this is... Yeah, was that I think what Mel Brooks, is, was, Brooks was pointing out? Right. But once Mel Brooks has lampooned it, it's it, it's over. I mean, you can't go back to tights <laughs> after Mel Brooks has, has made the joke. That is the final punchline on the tight story of Robin Hood. I think this is a generational story. I think this is a story that Ridley Scott has been hearing since he was a kid. And he's the kid who grew up with all of the other stories that we've been watching. And now that he has a chance to, to put his stamp on it, he's going to put his stamp on it. A kid who has absorbed all of the other stories and now wants to try something different. I do not uh, begrudge him for doing something that is absolutely 100% in his style, in his wheelhouse, and has the name Robin Hood on it. Same with Russell Crowe. I mean, these guys, uh, they they saw something intriguing and they they tried to do something different. And, and I do think that... Um, you know, I applaud their efforts because there is a lot that I do like in here. Um, and and I'm so glad they didn't do the tights. I'm really glad they didn't do the tights. I think it's OK to have a Robin Hood story that is one that celebrates for these the filmmakers um, a, a an homage to the time, if not as artfully to the character that we thought we were going to get when we saw Robin Hood on the title card. That's okay. I had to adjust to that too. And I feel like over the days since I've watched it, um, I'm, I'm liking it more and more. Yeah. And that's, that brings up an interesting, another interesting point um, on our list of big questions is how much does the title in this particular case end up affecting the film? Would this have been better if it was called something like Robin Hood Origins or something to that extent where you you get a sense this isn't the typical Robin Hood story I've seen. It's kind of like an early take on his life that leads to the Robin Hood that I'm used to. I mean, does just calling it Robin Hood affect it in a really negative way when it's so well known? Yeah, well, I mean, again, this, this gets us back to uh, uh, marketing choices, right? I mean, I I, I am sure that they wanted to make a Robin Hood story, and I don't think there's anyone in there that, that you know, Ridley Scott, Russell Crowe, you know, the rest of the production team that's going to say that the movie was going to be titled something else. I have a very hard time imagining that. But I did read this passage that I enjoyed from uh, Stephen Padnick over at Tor.com, uh, where he outlines the whole premise of the movie, the Robin Hood story, and then says, that sounds like a pretty good Robin Hood plot, yeah? Unfortunately, it's only the B plot, because the A plot is, quote, the shockingly bloody history of the Magna Carta. Oh. Also, there is Robin Hood. 
<laughs> I found myself cracking up because that is th- that is the the more uh, accurate and articulate title. Uh, if we're going to uh, nail down specifics, that's what the story <laughs> sort of builds to. Uh, and um, and and Robin Hood is again, he's the ancillary character. I don't think it's a problem that. You know, Russell Crowe is playing the title character of Robin Hood. This is a Russell Crowe vehicle. Let it let it be that. That's all right. Yeah. Did it give you trouble? I mean, did you were you tied up in that? No, I I feel like I ended up enjoying it as well. And I mean, I could but I knew walking into this film that this was a version of this story that was problematic because people felt like it was a little deceptive that you get the the final moments of this film are basically the setup for the Robin Hood that we know where little or little John, where King John, uh, he, he basically decrees that Robin Hood is an outlaw and everybody needs to, you know, find him. Meanwhile, he's doing all these terrible taxes and Robin Hood, along with the Merry Men and Marion and everyone else are setting up shop in the Sherwood forest so that they can start basically the whole adventure of robbing from the rich to give to the poor. It's the Mm -hmm. setup for the story. And you don't realize that. And I know that's why a lot of people were really frustrated with this film because it takes so long to get to that place where you're in that familiar landscape of what Robin Hood should be. And I mean, there's plenty of other stuff. He's got his his buddies, there's Marion, there's all these elements, but it's just, it's this shift. And so that's why it's one of those things where it's called Robin Hood, but should it be? And I, I can't help but feel like it would have made more sense and perhaps made more money at the box office if it had been titled something that allowed people to set their expectations in a way where they said, where they weren't walking out going, where the hell was my Robin Hood story that I wanted to see? You know, we had some very similar complaints back in August when we talked about the 1922 version of Robin Hood, if you recall, when the movie spends much of the first hour uh, dealing with the Crusades, and we were wondering where the heck Robin Hood was. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think this film hinges on your ability to to, uh, focus on... Um, you know, what living in the now, right? Being present with the character that you see, is Russell Crowe enough Robin Hood? Is this origin story enough of the Robin Hood daring do? Uh, or do you have to see the archery tournament to make it a Robin Hood story? Do you yeah. have to see, uh, you know, the staff fight on the bridge to make it a Robin Hood story? I, I think for me, I found enough Robin Hood in Russell Crowe's portrayal of this Robin Hood that I didn't really notice that this ended up being an origin story. I don't think it needed the ending title card uh, or the, the, you know, the end card to tell us the story begins. I don't think we needed that at all. I think that, in fact, muddies the water because it feels like, oh, great. Now I have to wait for a sequel to see the real story that's not it what we what we saw is exactly the point in history that that uh Ridley Scott and Russell Crowe and the, the team felt like was the most important part of this character's role in history and that's the movie they made uh, on that i feel like it it should be judged yeah and i definitely agree because i mean i i felt that i could enjoy it and i didn't really have a problem uh for those reasons i i thought it was a pretty interesting way to tell this story the last big question 
is uh, uh, maybe a little bit more superficial. Of all of the actors who have played Robin Hood, who was the sexiest? <laughs> okay, maybe that wasn't the big question. Uh, how how much does uh, does the age range of the actors uh, impact? their believability as Robin Hood in, in this case. I, I went into this series uh, thinking that Robin Hood was younger guy yeah. uh, because of just the, the way history works, right? You know, the, the stages in life were abbreviated uh, in the 12th century. People just didn't live as long. And so I thought, well, maybe he's going to be a younger guy. And some of the movies made good on that. Some of them, uh, you know, Sinatra in particular overshot the mark. But of course, he was in a different period. He was in a different period. I can see why that one really didn't matter too much. He was 49 when he played uh, old Robbo. And then this was interesting. We had Sean Connery at the age of 46 playing uh, Robin as kind of a little too old to be doing what he's doing. Yet we have Russell Crowe, who also happened to be 46 when he was playing Robin Hood. And uh, he is doing... Might as well be doing what Errol Flynn yeah. and them were doing. Uh, he sold uh, it. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. Uh, Patrick Bergen was 40. Douglas Fairbanks, 39. Brian Bedford's voice as the Fox was, uh, he was 38. Kevin Costner was 36. Carrie L was 31. Errol Flynn in, was 29. And just for comparison's sake, Taron Edgerton, also 29. And See, just, just also I, for comparison's yeah. sake, I am 46. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at uh, Sean Connery on one side of the spectrum and Russell Crowe on the other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How's, how are you feeling? All right? Well, All right. yeah. I feel like Sword. if I were to climb a wall of a castle, it would probably be more like Sean Connery doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. I'm going to go find a castle wall and test it just to see. <laughs> Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I think the, uh, Errol Flynn, uh, weirdly Errol Flynn, Flynn is the one who sells the age. Well, probably Carrie Elwes who, who sells the age best. Uh, he even looked like a young 31. Um, yeah, yeah. but, very baby faced. Uh, yeah. But in terms of a, a, a movie, an action film, a lead that is going to carry an action film, I think Russell Crowe is at the, is, is at the high point. And, um, he sells the rugged, weathered look of the period better than anybody else. Uh, it, 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 yeah. He feels much more lived in. Yeah, I, well, and to that end, Sean Connery did too. And maybe that is partly an age thing. But I think Russell Crowe just carries that presence anyway. And so um, I, I really just kind of bought that. And uh, I think this is one of those movies where you have to buy into Russell Crowe carrying this this film and if you do, then you can probably walk out enjoying it more than if, you know, you have if if you compare Russell Crowe to uh, old two by four Costner, um, you know, there are people who just like Costner feel that Russell Crowe is not much of an actor. And I happen to be on the other side of the fence on both of them. I think they really both can carry films tremendously and enjoy both of them. And, and because of that, I think I enjoyed this um, quite a bit. I want to move into some other points beyond our, our big questions. And, and I, I would like to declare in front of you and our podcast audience. Perhaps the world. I, and, and perhaps the world. I believe with this movie, Ridley Scott has solved the Marion problem. 
problem. Mm, Discuss. That's, that's a big uh, <laughs> a big point. I I would agree. It's interesting because obviously I think there's you know a sense of historical historical rewriting to make characters like Marion as active as as. Uh, Kate Blanchett is in this particular film. It feels like a very modern take on a 12th century woman. But uh, that being said, I agree. I think that having her do the things that she's doing uh, really kind of just gave great life to that character. And I I found her endlessly fascinating. I did too. And I think you bring up the the central challenge that I have now, it's a new Marion problem. It's that she needs to be graded both on how the character was written, whether or not it lives up to historical accuracy in the tone and tenor of this 12th century story, uh, and, uh, you know, this other scale, which is how well the character is written to uh, craft a resonant, uh, you know, female protagonist with agency that that doesn't get diminished over our time with her in the film. And all of the other Marians have had some sort of challenge uh, in, in this respect, most notably Prince of Thieves. We've just has sort of became the Marian problem. Uh, and uh, I, I think this movie wrote a character that was worth spending time with, worth owning the the screen. Every single word that came out of Kate Blanchett's mouth, I think, was um, was well-earned and well-deserved screen time. And I think they brought a, a brilliant new light to the relationship between Robin and Marion. I love how they weaseled their way into them falling in love with one another and not having this wooing from afar uh, trickery going on. It, it, it felt like a, a relationship worth following. That's very true. And I think that's going to be another story point that people are going to have to buy into with this. The fact that uh, Robin, he is kind of brought under the uh, under the kind of the arm of uh, I'm going to forget his name, but it's, it's basically Walter Senior Loxley. Yeah, Walter Loxley. Walter, Walter Loxley. Yeah. Uh, he, he's kind of brought into the fold to basically pretend he is his son so that the sheriff doesn't come and take their land away. Because if it's just Marion, then, you know, they're not going to let a woman own the property. And so by faking this marriage, they get to keep the land. Mm -hmm. That was a really interesting twist that I definitely appreciated. But I know some people will probably have an issue with the fact that they wrote this convoluted way for Robin to become Robin Longstride to become Robin Hood or Robin of Loxley. And uh, it's but it's an element that I found to be really interesting and kind of just totally enjoyed what they did with it. And I bought into it right away. I did, too. And I love the relationship of of Walter Loxley. Yeah, uh, I, I think. Uh, as the blind old man, you know, comes out and and he grieves very quickly. But you can tell that I, I think the years of having his son away, uh, you know, for the better part of a decade, uh, I, I think he, you can tell in the performance that he all he already knew his his son was dead, and he just he had been planning the mechanics of this turnover um, for some time, uh, and so I, I I found that believable and. Uh, but I can see where some would, would be challenged by his turn, his dramatic turn and how that was portrayed in the film. It's very fast. Uh, yeah. His grieving his grieving turns to 
machinations of trickery very quickly. Uh, but I bought it. Likewise, on top of that, another element that, you know, when you tie these things together, it becomes like there's just so much happening on top of this one particular situation. And I know that it can just be too much for people, but there's the incredibly unlikely coincidence that Robin happens to be this child that Walter and uh, William Hurst's character had lost when they were um, when they when they were you know protecting this child and they had lost. It. There's a long story around it, but the fact that they knew who this kid was and he just happened to be the one to bring the news of the son's death and all this sort of stuff. It's like so much coincidence playing into that whole situation to make it work. But again, I ended up just kind of buying into it. That's sometimes what you have to do with movies is they present this situation and are are you going to accept that this is the way the story is going to be told? And for me, it worked. Yeah, I, that's where it, it starts pulling at some threads of incredulity for me. I, I struggled a little bit more with some of these coincidences on top of coincidences. I could understand. I could sort of write the narrative in my head of how Walter would uh, would bring himself to, you know, the, the protective stance of his daughter-in-law and of his, you know, property. Um, and the connection between him and the marshal and, you know, that they had some you know they they had put themselves in charge of watching young robin at the beheading of his own father i i it just was a a small community kind of a statement that i i'm not sure was as earned as i wanted it to be and there were a couple of other sequences in the film that i really struggled with not the least of which is the the grand speech at the end on the uh, uh, you know, bringing all the the barons together actually the unveiling of the magna carta right i mean it was um, it, it was a struggle for me how quickly that turn was made uh, and, and reminded me, it is the one element of the film that really reminded me of the challenges of the film. The fact that this was two very diverse stories that were trying to make one story. Suddenly, it is 100% amped up politics that felt like it came out of nowhere uh, to me. It was just a very quick turn. So those are some things that I that I struggle with, but I'm with you. I'm, I mean, I enjoyed the film. I, I I'll say it again. I enjoyed the film. That's where those were some of the pressure points. Yeah, no. And I definitely can see that because it's, it's it's just one of those things that it's like a, it's a tricky, weird way to kind of blend all of this together. And did we need all of that? It was it there just to very specifically tie Robin more directly into that other storyline? feels like it it probably was there for that very specific reason so that he could be the one kind of giving that speech yeah it's it it might be a little much to kind of push all that together but right well and because we now have a robin hood that is central to the reunification of england in a very important real historical period (laughs) Right. Yeah. So a sequel to this movie, if we were to say, OK, the origin begins here now or the, the story begins here, what happens next? So now he goes back and is just the tight wearing Robin Hood, you know, steal from the rich, give to the poor. He's only that guy now because what they set up is he's kind of a politician. 
And yeah. I'm not sure where you go here from 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 here on with this character. I think that I'm, I'm glad Ridley Scott isn't making any more Robin Hood mov- mov- movies because I think he's muddied the waters in such a way that I don't I don't know what kind of character comes out of the setup that is this movie. Yeah, the that would be an interesting thing to have seen is is what what sort of story would they take from that point forward? Yeah, yeah, it might be a little much. Uh, we've got a little bit of Robin Hood lore. She'll do a little bit of rapid fire. Uh, were you burned that there's no archery tournament? No, I mean it's one of those things. It's been in some of them, hasn't been in others. Yeah. It doesn't bug me that it's not here. We got a lot of great archery. Uh, my my uh, archery palette was cleansed. Yeah, there, there's plenty of archery. Need, there's I didn't plenty of the good need. archery, right? Yeah. And lots of, I mean, they a lot of real archery, and I felt really good about that. I the one thing I was curious, they made such a big deal in some of the prior uh, Robin Hood movies about which side of the arrow they knock the arrow on. We've talked about so many. This one, they knock the arrow on the left of the bow instead of on the right, and I felt like, oh, I know enough to know that that's. Uh, Maybe not the right way to do it now because of Lars and our our buddy. Um, have the staff fight on the bridge. This is kind of one of those iconic moments when Robin meets Little John. Uh, it, it, this has been replaced by the shell game in the tent, which I quite liked. Uh, this this opportunity for Robin to meet our new Little John uh, in, in a game of of trickery. Yeah, I I liked it too. It, much like I liked the pool game in uh, Robin and the Seven Hoods, I, I think that it was okay. I think it wasn't as clearly written that it leads to friendship. All of a sudden, I felt like, you know, we've got this this thing where they kind of bump heads and kind of tussle, and then all of a sudden they're like best friends, and that to me was kind of a, a quite the jump that they took. There, I, I see that. that That is the same feeling I have with some of the later elements. It's pulling on the threads of incredulity. Mm-hmm. It just is too fast. Uh, however, the Merry Men in general, we have Scott Grimes uh, uh, and uh, uh, Kevin Durand as as Little John and Alan Doyle uh, as Alan Adele. Uh, I, and, and Mark Addy as Friar Tuck. Uh, I love these guys. Every one of them to a person is great. I I love Scott Grimes so much. I am blown away that he's in this movie and I'm even more so blown away that he holds his own. Yeah, right? Who'd have thought after fighting all those critters that he'd be ready for that? (laughs) (laughs) And and I love seeing Kevin Durant anyway, you know, whether he's a good guy or bad guy because he's so creepy as a bad guy, but it's like, oh, it's nice to have him as a good guy here. Yeah, it really is. And Alan Doyle, in in terms of uh, having a musical feature in the movie, I think they used Alan Doyle and his talents so much better than what we got in Prince of Thieves, which was such a distraction. I, I you know, uh, Great Big C is a, a always on the playlists for me. I mean, I'm just a huge fan, have been for 20 years. Uh, and so it's a real treat to see him on screen. Uh, but also to see him not misused, uh, but but actually have his musical talents on display in a way that feels of the period. So I thought that was terrific. That was a big thing that I don't think I ever realized that I had missed until this film is that Alan Adale, who is kind of the uh, the bardsman. I know there's a name. I'm totally forgetting what his role is, but he's the Balladier one. Balladier in Prince Balladier, of Thieves. Balladier, yeah, yeah. And 
there, it's just it's so rarely there other than like the the rooster in the Disney version uh, who yes. sings a few times like this actually felt like a guy who's there to kind of also just play songs for the troops. And I, I don't know. I just I really liked that. Mark Hattie's Friar Tuck. I love the bee angle. He's a beekeeper. Yeah. And and the fact that he they use the bees as a way to to get us to his boozing, uh, I, I think is terrific as he uh, introduces Honeymead. Mm -hmm. to the group and i thought that was just fantastic okay plus he has a great opportunity to then use the bees as a weapon which as a weapon yes absolutely uh we have to talk about the children (laughs) there are horror movies that have this very story (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's an interesting idea it's an interesting idea is it though I, I thought so, that the kids really just kind of like, you know, I don't know, they, they took to the, to the woods to just kind of do their own thing. I thought it was pretty interesting. I, I don't know if I ever bought it. At what point did you find yourself asking, do I really buy this? Um, right away. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever then, let me ask this, did you ever at any point in the movie say, no, I don't buy this? Like, did you ever answer it? I think right away, but I, and and this is where I thought it was a pretty interesting thing is like, it's an interesting world that they set up where they've got these kids living in the woods because it's almost like the parents are so poor and starving that they just can't take care of them. And the kids are kind of off doing their own thing. That's a really hard idea to write and write it well. And I don't think they accomplished it here. Right. I think this, this movie demonstrates just how hard it is to write that. Because it becomes like there are so many things that I just don't buy in this world where kids are doing this, where it's like, if they get sick, they're going to say, I just want to go home to my mom. Mm -hmm. And that's the end of the party in the woods. There were so many threads in the party in the woods loop and the, you know, the haunting kind of aspect. What, you know, what is the story that they're trying to tell here? And I felt like it was shoehorned in. Uh, It is the one problem I have with Marion, because the climax of this particular F story of the movie is that the kids do show up on ponies on the beach and she is the one leading them. And the grand line from Robin is circle your troops and, you know, join the battle. Uh, I found that ridiculous. It was just ridiculous. Those children would have been slaughtered immediately. (laughs) Not even slaughtered. They wouldn't have even been gracefully, like, murdered in the act of battle. They would have been trampled because, again, they're on ponies. It was terrible. It was so silly and distracting. I don't care about the historical argument. The verisimilitude of this has to live up to the story that's on screen, and they did not do a, a fair job of uh, of demonstrating how this was a, a real thing that Robin and you know Marion were going to have to deal with. It was a distraction, and um, you know she could have just as easily shown up uh, ready for battle herself alone and had a grand starring role that was in the fight. Like she fought, and it was great. And we didn't need the kids. I was I, that was the dumbest part. And and that was the point when I said, no, I don't buy it. I tried. I really did. I tried to buy it. But when they showed up on the beach, no, it's dumb. It's a dumb thing. It's it's yeah, it, it sets up. Let's live in the woods. 
these kids can pull it off. We can too. You know, it kind of, it, it sets up the whole idea of the band of merry men, but yep. it is a real struggle to get there. And it's unfortunate that that's the direction they took. I feel like that is part of the line that Ridley is trying to walk of realistic historical fiction paired with fantastical Robin Hood mythos. And that is an element of the fantastical that just butts heads with the reality that he's creating. Well, let's uh, let's let's talk about the bad guys, uh, mm. because uh, when we meet Oscar Isaac in this movie, I was uh, I was over the moon. I was very excited by the portrayal of this character, and I thought he was he was great. Um, and then he started looking really familiar. And then I realized, oh, right, I've seen this character and it was Commodus and Gladiator. Like, I've I've seen this character before. I, this is Ridley Scott likes to play with this particular archetype. And that's great. I really like him. And I think Oscar Isaac did a good job with him. Um, but he is also in that he's familiar. I felt like the his turns, the the portrayal of his betrayals were a, a little bit too telegraphed. Well, and it's Prince John or King John in this particular yeah, right. case. So you you pretty much know the character walking into the film and you know it, it doesn't even have to be telegraphed because it's the character, right? Yeah, right. And that's something like, you know, if he's being nice, that it's not going to end up going well. That's just the nature of telling this story. And that is one of the difficulties of doing it. I think they do a great job kind of playing the character, just like you said, that uh, Oscar Isaac does feel very much like like the gladiator character, but he does it in an interesting way that still ends up working for me. So I had fun with the two, despite the issues with kind of the yeah. archetype that we're looking at. Now, the the real linchpin bad guy is Godfrey. Um, yes, yes. Now, his is, is, I think, the most interesting role in the film for me. Uh, his betrayal is the most interesting betrayal because he is essentially a double agent. Right. Yeah. Right. He's working for the English and the French. He's buddies, you know, childhood buddies with King John, but he's also working with the French and he's kind of creating this whole thing, this whole elaborate scheme to basically kind of start the war. And I, I, I'm forgetting, I, I know there are reasons for all of this, but it just was big and convoluted and political. And, you know, he just, you know, seems to be kind of out to get everybody. Yeah, well, I mean, he wanted to tear the English apart so that when the French invaded, they would be so busy fighting each other that the French could just waltz in and take over right. England. And there are some really great and sinister moments in the movie at the hands of Godfrey. Uh, their midnight uh, murder at the camp when everybody is asleep and all of the French soldiers come in and stand over mm. to a man and, you know, count to three and and assassinate every single uh, English soldier in the camp at once is terrific and horrifying uh, and so beautifully shot and framed and lit. I just, I love it. It's a real weird high point of the movie for me. That is a weird high point. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, Ridley Scott knows how to do stuff like that and do it well. I, yeah, I, I agree. Great bad guy. 
set up for a really interesting story. And because of the big political machinations going on with King John and the French king coming in on the boats and everything, you need that. You because ha- otherwise, those are kind of the big guys. You're, yeah. But your focus of the story is much smaller. It's very specifically to to Robin Hood. And so you need that guy for him to have a chance to focus on the bad guy. Plus, it gives us the opportunity to have the arrow, uh, the arrow cam. <laughs> That's right. We get the arrow cam, and uh, and it's terrific. Interesting always. point about the arrow cam. This is I can't say because I haven't seen all of the arrow cam usages, but the first time we certainly have seen it in any of these, and maybe the first time I've seen it, where it's an arrow cam that is not assuming that an arrow shot flies directly straight to its target, but that it, in fact, needs some arc so that it goes up and comes down. This is the only time where it does that. When Robin shoots that arrow at at Godfrey at the end, he actually shoots it up. And we, on the sitting on the camera, or sitting on the arrow, fly up, and we don't see, we just see Sky, and then it tilts down, and lo and behold, he's right in front of us. Uh, I can't remember when he makes that shot earlier in the film in the woods. Is that an arrow cam shot? I didn't make a note when he makes it and and slices Godfrey's face. No, we don't get any arrow traveling. No, I'm pretty sure he shoots quick and then it yeah. cuts to Godfrey as he kind of turns his head. And it's, and the, the yeah, arrow it's that reverse shot. Right we see it come him, yeah. by. Uh, yeah. OK. All right. Well, I, I think the uh, the bad guys are a high point uh, for me. I, I feel like all of them. And I think that, you know, reducing the sheriff to that sort of comic relief uh, was OK. Yeah, it, it, it was, was an well odd turn for the sheriff, actually, for me. I I couldn't tell. I'm like, should I be expecting more of this character? And it never really came. And uh, I kind of wanted there to be more. And then when when Godfrey shows up and his men, they, in fact, set the sheriff's house on fire. And I'm like, oh, OK, this is really taking a turn for this character that I never expected, that he's pretty much completely d- diminished as a big antagonist of the story. Um, right. I. Uh, part of me doesn't like that because it feels so intrinsic to the nature of the Robin Hood tales. But, and, and especially coming off of script where he was the protagonist. Right. That's, that's the most interesting <laughs> point is that this character, the script shifted so much that the protagonist of the story that focuses the entire story becomes like such a minor B character that it almost doesn't even matter. Anybody else in the cast you want to talk about? I think we've hit pretty much everything. William Hurt is always great. Um, I did just have I, a you note. Know, I should I, say on William that? Hurt, though, I should say on William Hurt, they that is one of the characters that did get uh, boosted with the director's cut. He was an undecided character. Uh, they, they, nobody was really sure what to make of him. He was kind of this nebulous character. And they gave him a role, a relationship of, uh, of sort of principality in the region. And that relationship was not apparent, apparently, in the theatrical mm. cut. So the marshal, marshal got boosted. Okay, well, that's that's where a lot yeah. of that time was because I felt like he was yeah. in it quite a bit. The only other point I had, Eileen Atkins, who played Eleanor of Aquitaine, that was another addition that I really liked. The fact that here we have the mother of uh, John and Richard who uh, is kind of still whispering in their ears a little bit. I thought that was actually a really interesting element to have um, in the story. But she actually ended up replacing Vanessa Redgrave, who had been originally cast, but Redgrave dropped, dropped uh, she dropped out after her daughter, Natasha Richardson, passed away. Sad, but I, I love Eileen Atkins in this. I think she did a great job. 
I really that, liked that her, it too. Her, her whole sequence when she has to talk to and, and make the the pitch uh, to um, uh, Isabel. Uh, yes, Isabella Lea of yeah, Lea Seydoux. Yeah. Uh, the, when she has to make her pitch that, you know, that it is Isabel who has to um, tell her husband now uh, that he has to be aware that there is a betrayal because she can't do it. She can't scold her son anymore. He doesn't trust her. I thought that whole bit of of sort of inner palace mechanics, it was just so beautifully played by her. I think she was just wonderful. Definitely, definitely. Uh, I didn't mention him by name, but um, uh, Walter Loxley's uh, Max von Sydow. He, he is always fantastic. He is, definitely. Camera, John Matheson. Looking at what he does here, I mean, this is just a beautiful, sumptuous film. Like, everything they shoot is just just drop-dead gorgeous. I mean, really, it truly is. And I don't have any complaints about how the thing was shot and how beautiful it looks. And uh, even how it was... Um, you know, how it was blocked. I, I could make sense of everything in the forest, right? I, I never had any challenges of getting lost or or getting turned around or fig- feeling like they didn't have me well-placed in what can be a very convoluted sort of architected set. And I, I think um, I, I think it was just beautifully handled. Um, I, and- I, at some point, I wanted to talk about the big climactic battle, and I forgot to talk about that. So, But, but I don't want to associate that with Matheson's work. Oh, okay. I just had one last point is that he did another of these kind of Robin Hood types of characters that have entered the mythos and conveniently also public domain as far as telling the story. He he was the DP behind King Arthur Legend of the Sword that came out uh, a couple years ago now. He was also behind Pan. Mm-hmm. Isn't been, that sort of another one? A lot of a lot of stuff. No, I just mean in terms of those characters. I don't think Pan is, Pan is not is is still a Disney property. But in terms of those, no, it's not. It's not. Oh no, the the Pan that came out uh, just a couple years ago. I don't think yeah. that was Disney. Oh, interesting. Well, in, in any case, then uh, that I I associate Pan with these characters, Pan and Robin Hood, and uh, yeah, yeah, Mary yeah. Queen of Scots. You know, they're all of a piece for me. Yeah. Logan. <laughs> <That's> Warner <laughs> Brothers. Warner Brothers did. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, we've talked about a bunch of his stuff. Uh, we've, he's, he's been, his name's been bandied about a lot. All right. Oprah ended up with the sword. What's that all about? Yeah, I thought this was just an interesting little um, fact about this. Um, apparently, Russell Crowe, there's the sword that has the insignia um, rise and rise again until lambs become lions on the handle. And uh, it actually was Ridley Scott's, but Russell uh, and Scott decided that this would be an interesting thing to present to Oprah um, because, as they said, they felt this motto epitomized her tenacity and her phenomenal rise to fame. Oh, that's very sweet. Yeah. I'm sure it's above her mantle. I want to see her wielding it, though. I need that. Bucket list. Uh, and we get some <laughs> bucket list. I'm going to go to Oprah's house. <laughs> All right. This is the last thing that we're doing, uh, the last Robin Hood film that we're doing in this series. And it more than any other, it probably means we need to talk about sequels and remakes now. Yeah, definitely. Um, This film actually, I mean, I thought this was interesting. Ridley Scott said that 
he enjoyed making this film so much, and he thought that it had great potential to to do a sequel. And he uh, said, you know, if and and even really uh, even Russell Crowe said, you know, he'd love to do it. I don't know if this was before or after um, the the full making because apparently their relationship after I think five films together soured a little bit. Um, but they both seem to enjoy it. Unfortunately, it did not do as well uh, money-wise, so that pipe dream uh, just never took place. That being said, there have been plenty of other Robin Hood films that have been made uh, or properties since this film came out in 2010. In 2012, we had Robin Hood, Ghosts of Sherwood, and of course the 2018 Taron Edgerton, Jamie Foxx vehicle. Uh, the Philippines had a live-action uh, TV show called Alias Robin Hood a couple years ago. There have been two animated features, Tom and Jerry, Robin Hood and His Merry Mouse, and Robin Hood Mischief in Sherwood, which was an Indian-French CG uh, movie. Also, there have been some abandoned projects. Um, the Wachowskis were planning on directing a film called Hood, which was a modern adaptation of the legend. And Disney was trying to do a Robin Hood called Nottingham, Nottingham and Hood, which was uh, in tone similar, similar to Pirates of the Caribbean, trying to launch a new franchise, but that never took off. And on top of that, Sony Pictures also was trying to do a shared universe with various characters where you would have spinoffs of various merry men like Will Scarlet having his own film and Little John having his own film. Well, see, we actually we actually talked about that with one of the movies that that uh, yeah, I, I can see. Right. I can see that Robin and Marion would have made a great split. Yeah. What would what would Marion's story be here? Yeah. Likewise, there have been plenty of just live-action parody and animated parodies in shows like Once Upon a Time or Doctor Who and uh, Arrow and um, VeggieTales. And so it's it's a very popular property. And I guess based on all of that, it just shows that there's probably no sign of stopping. Well, I, I got to go back to the first one you mentioned, which is Robin Hood Ghosts of Sherwood. Mm. Uh, did you happen to read what that was, was about? Because I would like to share it with you. I did, because I think when we were pitching this show originally and asking <laughs> our people to vote, our, our Patreons to vote on which ones they wanted, I think that I had put that on the list because I, I read it and I believe. said, this sounds terrible. I want to yes. watch it. It, I can't believe it didn't make it. The uh, Robin Hood and his Merry Men are slain by Sheriff of Nottingham. And so uh, Merry Men and Little John or Marion and Little John attempt to resurrect Robin and his comrades. In doing so, they inadvertently turn the one time heroes into the living dead. And worse, the ghostly reincarnations are now out for blood. Y'all, this is the movie that we should have started with. Why are we not watching this movie? We have we have squandered an incredible opportunity. I can't. I'm I'm shamed. Uh, me too. Me too. Uh, how to do an awards season? This one. It wasn't a big awards movie. It only had one win with 14 other nominations. At the SAG Awards, it uh, did get a nomination for outstanding performance by a stunt ensemble, but lost to Inception. At the Saturn Awards, uh, it was nominated for Best Costume, lost to Alice in Wonderland, Best Action Adventure Film, lost to Salt, which is kind of surprising, and Best DVD Special Edition, lost to Avatar. 
at the Visual Effects Society Awards, Outstanding Supporting Visual Effects in a Motion Picture, lost to Hereafter. And then I thought this was a funny one. The Alliance of Women Journalists had the Special Mention Award for remakes that shouldn't have been made. This, however, (laughs) (laughs) lost to Clash of the Titans. Wow. Yeah, Shame there's, a, there's an award you want on your Clash shelf. of the Titans shouldn't have been made. <laughs> that was uh, definitely a reinvention. Oh, my The yes. original. <laughs> yeah, how to do it at the box office. Oh, Ridley, how do you get away with the things you do? I just don't know, Pete, if you recall this, but I mentioned a few weeks back when we were discussing Costner's version of the tale that while his did cost a lot, there was still one that would cost more than double. That would be this one. Ridley Scott started with $155 million, but went on to spend $210 million on this film. $210 million. Wow. That is $245.7 million in today's dollars. Wow. That, yeah. It's crazy. It is. This is interesting. That is nearly what the other Robin Hood films we've discussed cost in today's dollars when you add the budgets together. (laughs) Just for perspective. Yeah. Wow. Uh, But anyway, the movie was released May 14th, 2010, where it opened opposite Just Right with Queen Queen Latifah and Letters to Juliet with Amanda Seyfried, along with a handful of some other limited releases. Scott's film could not bump Iron Man 2 out of the top spot, so it had to settle for number two, which would be the highest it would ever get. It did end up making $105.4 million domestically and $216.9 million internationally for a total in today's dollars of $377.3 million. So it made its money back, and luckily Ridley Scott, they'd let him keep making movies, but this was still <laughs> largely considered a box office disappointment. Still, it ended up with an adjusted profit per finished minute of 889000 uh, Of the seven Robin Hood films that we had financials for, though, it is the least profitable, earning back only 1.5 times its costs. And that's assuming, wow. I mean, again, I don't have all of the financials for all of these films. Like, I'm guessing with the prints and advertising and all that other stuff, this likely was actually a loss. Uh, it's stunning. It's just uh, extravagance that yeah. uh, went into this movie. Well, I feel like I was watching the the making of, and I feel like this was really one of those films where Ridley Scott was trying to do what like Cecil B. DeMille would do back in uh, his day, where, I mean, he had a full cast. Like when it was people fighting in the water, it was all people fighting in the water. Like I didn't see any CG elements that were added. So I think that he was really creating these massive, massive groups of people and stuff and moving them around to create these giant war scenes. So I think he went all out creating a large epic with just a lot of people, big sets, big locations. And I think that's one of those things that does kind of uh, bite you a little bit. Well, it it is beautiful. It is, um, and and it is a great, frankly, way for I, I feel like for us to end this series. I'm so glad we can end it on at least a relative high note compared to so many of the other films that we've seen. Because for me, I think it's a it it's a great portrayal of the character in a, a gritty and rich environment, and I appreciate that. And it certainly is a better way to end than Taron Edgerton's version. 
Uh, right. You're uh, maybe a, a bit too curmudgeonly on that one. I'm, but it's fun. It but I feel like after watching all these, I feel like I'd watch that one and go, oh, yeah. This one, I felt like at least there's that Ridley Scottness with it. So, uh, all right. I think it's probably time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all of the movies that we've talked about on this very show. Uh, if you swipe over in your show notes or up or sideways, I don't know how you need to swipe in your podcast player, but on mine, I swipe over and I get to the the links and I can tap the word flickchart and that'll take me straight to this movie over on the website, flickchart.com, where I can add it to my personal list. You could do the same thing. See how it stacks up uh, on your list against our list. It'll be great. It'll be like a flick party. <laughs> Flick party. <laughs> All right. First up, we have Robin Hood or A Star is Born, the 1937 version. Robin Hood. I will say Robin Hood as well. Robin Hood or Rocky Balboa. Rocky Balboa. Yep. I got to go with Rocky Balboa here. Robin Hood or The Abyss. Definitely uh, the, the Abyss. Abyss. Yeah. Robin Hood or Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd for me. Robin Hood or High Noon? Hmm. That's a trickier one for me. Is it easy for you? I'm going to say High Noon. Okay. That's what I needed. <laughs> okay. That's all I needed. Robin Hood or Joe versus the Volcano? Joe versus the Volcano. Definitely Joe. Robin Hood or Hot Fuzz? Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz. Robin Hood or Numi, the girl with the dragon tattoo? Girl with the dragon tattoo. Dragon tattoo. Robin Hood or? Another Eleanor of Aquitaine vehicle, The Lion in Winter. Lion in Winter for me. Really? How oh, hard? Yeah. Real hard? Definitely. All right. You may not recall, but I loved that movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I recall. That's good. <laughs> okay. Well, that lands Robin Hood at 209. 209 at 418. Smack dab in the middle of our chart. That's interesting. Uh, well, it's interesting for me personally. Because I performed exactly the same on my personal chart. How'd it do on yours? Exactly the same. 2105 <laughs> out of 4202, another 50 percenter. So, yeah, 553 out of 1104, that's a 50 percenter. So, according to the algorithm, we should be two and a half stars over on letterbox.com slash the next reel. That feels too short for me, given that this is the best of the Robin Hoods that we've watched to my eye. So I don't know. I'm leaning higher. What about you? Well, I think the best of the Robin Hoods uh, leaves out, you know, the, the Errol Flynn version, which I think is for me. Um, I, although I really did enjoy Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I think that there's a lot of fun with that one, but this one I'm at three and a half with a heart. I'm at four stars with a heart on this one. Wow. I feel, okay. I feel good about that. All right. I then. feel I feel like my complaints are quibbles. They're Andy Nelson quibbles TM. <laughs> did you give me a TM? I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. Or did you just steal my TM? <laughs> <laughs> Is that what just happened? I just I lost stole my your TM property. That's what happened. Sorry about that, Ouch. man. That must be embarrassing for you. <laughs> uh, uh, I didn't learn when Michael Jackson stole Paul McCartney's <laughs> music apparently. <laughs> Andy, uh, you can just re-record your masters. That's what everybody's doing. <laughs> uh, look, we're, we're done with Robin Hood. My God, man, we're done. Now, what have you gotten? What have you gotten me into now? That was a beefy, <laughs> beefy project. Uh, nine films looking at at this 
story. Maybe a few too many, but honestly, for me, I found it to be very interesting to look at so many of them all at once and really just kind of take it in. Yes, I agree. But now, but now we do shift. This is a much, a, a very big tonal shift. We are jumping into the early films of David Cronenberg, starting with Shivers. Then we're going to look at Rabid, Fast Company, The Brood, Scanners, Videodrome, and Dead Ringers. Boy, I feel like if there is any set of series that we've done on this show that will truly outline the Venn diagram of fans of the movies that we talk about, this is going. This is the year that's going to do it. Ingrid Bergman <laughs> to Robin Hood to David Cronenberg. Right. <laughs> that's just drama, man. <laughs> We're practically the Olympic rings of Venn diagrams. <laughs> yeah, I, it yeah. will be interesting to see, uh, you know, how the reaction goes with these various series. Oh, I'm very excited about it. Very excited. Well, everybody, that's it. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. <laughs> Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Amazon kind of did this week. Mm. Kind of did. What do you, uh, I, we both went with one stars. I think we went south. Yes, 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 we uh, did. Uh, how did you fare? I got a one star by R. Hertz, who says, terrible. A story about someone. They give him the name Robin Hood, but it's not him. There's no joy in this film. Think of what Errol Flynn did with the character. Or better, go back and watch that wonderful film. And at the end, it gets silly with Maid Marian wielding a broadsword in battle. Oh, please. A waste of wonderful talent. Oh. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I don't know. If it's waste a story about a someone. Weird. It's a story about someone. <laughs> well, uh, Stacy writes in with the one star saying that this is death by boredom omg this was so bad i couldn't even watch it for oscar isaac and i really love oscar isaac so <laughs> like little valley girl in there nice little bit uh, i was trying to i was trying to make it historically accurate <laughs> oh well <laughs> thank you stacy Thank you, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. 
After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.